Hey, are you here? Is this thing on? Can you hear me in the back, back there? Are you here? Ah, looks like quite a few of you are here. Show of hands, who's here? Okay, I see you and you and you. And you, thank you very much. And you know what? We're going to start the show even though some of you are here and didn't raise your hand. Now, everybody move down to the front. No empty seats. Everybody move down to the front. Anybody that comes in late has to sit in the back. But I'll talk louder for them. Anyway, we're just glad you're here. Now, Paul McCartney. <laughs> yes, that Paul McCartney is just about to turn 80. Oh my, what a celebration that'll be. Happy birthday, Sir Paul. But on this episode, we have an interview with one of Paul McCartney's longtime friends, another Paul. It is Paul Wicks Wickens. Paul joins us for a very rare interview. Now, Wicks Wickens has worked with artists like Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Tim Finn, David Gilmore, and lots more. Today, Wix Wickens is the keyboard player and musical director for Paul McCartney. Wix began touring with Mr. McCartney, Sir Paul, back in 1989. He's been with Paul ever since. He appeared on the 1990 live album, Trippin' the Live Fantastic. You've got a copy of that, don't you? He followed this by appearing on the Paul McCartney album, Unplugged. In the studio, Paul Wix Wickens has contributed to a lot, a bunch, very many of Paul McCartney's studio albums. You won't find many interviews with Paul Wicks Wickens, which makes this interview very special and valuable. So listen carefully and closely. Tune up and turn up your ears. If Wicks, you're listening to this, Wicks, another Paul, Paul Leslie says hello and thanks again for this experience, which you all are about to hear. Oops, there come more. You sit in the back. You came in late, but we're glad you're here. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just a short, quick announcement. If you can help the Paul Leslie Hour in our quest to get this content out there to as many people around the world as possible, please just visit www.the paulleslie.com slash support. No amount is too little, and certainly not too much. And we thank you. Really thank you. You are our lifeblood. And now the interview with Paul Wicks Wickens. We hope to welcome Paul Wickens again someday. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest is Mr. Wicks Wickens. He's the musical director of Paul McCartney's band, the keyboardist. Who is Paul Wicks Wickens? Well, that's a very good question. Who am I? Well, I'm a, I'm a professional musician. I guess really work-wise, that's what defines me. I do whatever I need to do within music to earn a living. Did you have a revelation in your lifetime when you realized that you were meant to be a musician? I don't know about being a professional musician. I knew early on that I liked music. Music was in the house when I grew up. Both my parents were into uh, classical music and church music, uh, which is what I mainly heard. 
my older brother and sister got into pop music, so I got a little bit of pop music from them. But there was music all around, and I had music lessons from when I was six because that was just a done thing. I was the third in line of you know four kids, and everybody else had had piano lessons, so I did the same. I guess it was when I got turned on to the blues by a, a friend at school. He was a collector of 78 records, the old acetates and the, the real old records, and he played me a Pine Top Perkins track, and I'd never heard piano playing like it. And that tweaked my interest. So through him, I learned about the blues, and that really kind of turned me away from my piano lessons. I'd done most of my grades by then by 14, 15. So I kind of backslid and stopped the lessons or started to not turn up or and learned to play the blues. I was played by ear better than reading music anyway. So, And that opened a whole new thing for me. Do you remember favorite musicians or bands growing up? Not so much favorite musicians or bands. It was what music made me feel and what songs and what performances made me feel. So I guess when I was... Growing up, the things uh, I remember Chuck Berry being on the telly. There was a it wasn't a video because it was pre video, but there must have been some kind of promotional film he made for, for No Particular Place to Go was the song. And I just remember the feeling that gave me listening to that track. So it, was, it wasn't really particular artists at that time. That's kind of happened more since I got into music. When someone listens to a recording you performed on or they see you in concert with Sir Paul McCartney, what is it that you hope the audience gets out of the experience of listening? Um, I think with live music, probably more so than ever, especially because technology's made shows like a personal appearance where a lot of it is playback and you maybe even if the singers aren't lip-syncing, there's a lot of kind of Pro Tools or whatever's coming at you. So you're getting this vast thing that's really a recording and a little bit of playing and a little bit of singing and sometimes no singing. So you're really just being in the room with the person if it's a star. And what I like to think, especially from our shows, because you know everything is, is it's utterly live, people playing an instrument and singing in the same space that you're in has a human connection that you can't really define, but you you can't get any other way. And so that that can't be wiped out by technology or anything. And that that really, for me, that's going to be the saving grace of, of music because that's been around since, I don't know, the, the, the clan gathered and played drums together and, and, and got their vibe on, you know. That's the same, and it's going to be the same forever. So for me, when you come to a live concert, that's what you should get. You should You should interact with the people performing. Mistakes, everything that goes on, that's part of it. What is it you like about music? Probably that, that it's, it's a universal connection. And I've been around the world and played with a lot of different people. Many years ago, I did a thing with Rai Kuda in Japan, and we played with some Japanese musicians. I can't even remember. They were from an island. So they, it was very, very specific and very alien. They, when they played kotos and they had their own thing and the guy played an electric guitar. They had pickups on these the kotos that they played. It was pretty strange to get it together, but because, you know, we didn't speak Japanese, they spoke absolutely no English. Raikuda is Raikuda, he's his own deal anyway. So we had this kind of three-way thing going on, and by the end of it, we'd figured out where we were, we'd made sense of it, we'd made our own sense of it, 
and we were able to perform. So it's kind of it's a universal language. It's it's, it's a bit of a cliche to say that, but it is. It's true. You can be moved by something when you don't understand the words. Can you give the listeners your recollections of the first public music performance you ever had? What was it like for you? Well, they were probably school piano competitions or music competitions where people who were learning music played a piece in front of an adjudicator and then got a critique of it to go home with. But you had to do it in front of an audience. So everyone went with their families and there was an audience of families there. And I used to get up with my dad and play piano um, duets. And so, you know, I felt the fear early on of that, actually performing in front of people when everybody's looking and you can't stop because it's live, you have to get to the end however you can. And so, you know, battling stage fright happened fairly early on. So they were probably the, f the the first ones. If you can put it into words, what was your first performance with Sir Paul McCartney like? Live performance, well, very nerve-wracking because we'd actually spent about seven months finishing an album and uh, the Flowers in the Dirt album and, and rehearsing at the same time. So as a band, we'd gone through a lot of numbers, about 70 numbers, on and off just to figure out what we were going to play and what to put in the set. Down at his place in his barn, it's all very comfy. We'd got used to it. We'd, we'd been holed up there, like I say, for months. And actually getting out and going, I believe it was Scandinavia where we first played, actually doing it all in a row. We'd done production rehearsals where you run the set. So it's like... But, of course, if you stop or if something goes wrong, you correct it, you fix it and carry on. Yeah, there were a few nervy bits. that, that I still get nervous. You know, how many hundred shows in now? It's it, uh, it's healthy, I think. It keeps you uh, with it, your mind on the on the game. Many of our guests who are pianists have cited Bill Payne of Little Feet as an influence. I've read Sir Elton John having said that he was a favorite, and I read he was your favorite keyboard player. Yeah, he's certainly an influence. I guess I I, I quote three people really. I, I consider to be influential. Um, there's lots that I like and lots that I've listened to, but Bill, certainly, I got very into Little Feet, and Bill's playing has a has a humanity to it. Also, he's he's a great technician. He uh, he can play some lovely classical music and jazz, and he can go out there. And I, I, I admire people like that because I don't consider myself to have that same kind of technique, which... There was only a very brief period where I kind of was worried about it or regretted it, if you like, because music is so wide. And I grew up listening to the blues where technique was very secondary, really. It was all what you were conveying, how you were singing, and you made one note say what you needed it to say, which for me is important. You know, technique by itself is, is it's a means to an end, and it can get in the way as much as it can help you. So I, I connected with his playing because it just it spoke to me. And uh, I loved the band. And then I was fortunate enough in the 80s to work with him on a couple of albums and uh, got to know him. And he's since become a friend. And, you know, when, when Little Feet used to reformed and used to go around, I, I'd get up and have a play. So that's that's been great for me. You know, I met one of my heroes and he was still really nice guy. And then the other two people that I sometimes quote are... Um, Count Basie, because of the spaces he leaves. 
when somebody else is playing, you know, it's his band, he's done the arrangements, he'll stop playing, listen to their solo and just put a bit in to support now and again. Playing in a group is as much about listening as it is about how you play. You know, if you get five people that all just play how they play, it's a mess. You have to listen. And you have to support and leave space for other people. And then there's uh, there's an American band who sadly don't don't work anymore, and that's uh, NRBQ, who were uh, like a very famous bar band for, I guess, 35 years. Never really got the success. They got the kind of notice and adulation from their fans, but it didn't translate into kind of success that meant um, a healthy living, I think. And their keyboard player is a guy called Terry Adams, who um, I saw recently. He came he came to the uh, one of the Boston gigs. He just has his own style. He's a, he's a mixture of Jerry Lee Lewis and Thelonious Monk and, and has kind of ploughed his own path. I love that band too, and I love his playing. He's, he goes way out there sometimes, but I'm able to stay with it. I can't go there with the, with the heavy-duty jazzers. They lose me. You know, once, once you've lost my interest, then yeah, fine, on you go, and you know, other people that can go with you can enjoy it, but I get left behind sometimes. I have to ask, you're wearing a late show with David Letterman shirt. Yeah. What is your impression of Mr. Paul Schaefer? Oh, I know Paul. Yeah, he's a fabulous B3 player organist i mean he's made that little slot his own and and he's he's got his little funnies that he does with david letterman and that that's that but you know above and beyond that initially he's a great organ player and, and a great md i mean he he runs that band so i know him originally as, as somebody who plays an organ and um i found him a b3 to play when he came in, in into britain one time and then we got friendly and i'd i'd done the letterman show with a couple of people kept seeing him and you know but yeah he's a fantastic musician our special guest is Wix Wickens, the musical director of Sir Paul McCartney's band. You've had the opportunity to work with some of the greatest artists of our time. David Gilmore, Tim Finn, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Elton John. Which one has the most meaning to you, if you could pick one? Well, I think the answer is I can't pick one, really. Significance for me, I suppose... It, in my early days, when I was starting out, uh, I had a band in the 70s. We got signed and we made you know, very little impression on the world, but it was a learning curve. And I, I then worked with um, a kind of underground political English singer-songwriter called Kevin Coyne, who was signed to Virgin Records. And I suppose he's a little bit, not the same style, but the same kind of... Um, approach in in his music as someone like Richie Havens. He was very much an artist. He His songwriting came completely from his heart and um, about what what he saw in life and the injustices and the rest of it. And, and my early recording and touring was with him. And that made a great impression upon me, which has been reinforced by a lot of the other people I've worked with, which is that especially when you're making a record, the performance you get is what you're trying to capture. Not so much how many notes you play or how great it is or if there's a mistake or not. It's what you're conveying to the audience. And all the great artists have that 
as a foundation, really, for when they're playing music and when they're, especially when they're recording, I suppose. And with Paul, when he's playing live, he, he'll have done those songs hundreds and hundreds of times, but he inhabits the song as a new song each time. And one of the great things you get when you go to see him play, and one of the most inspiring things that I get, having played with him for 20 years this year, is that it's still fresh and exciting. And he is giving... He sometimes sings things, even now, that I've never heard him sing on a song. He'll push himself, and he'll just be testing himself out, singing it in a slightly new way, the same old song, and that, to me, is refreshing and inspiring. And, and you get that with the great artists. They don't just churn it out. They're living it each time they do it. Few people can ever say in their entire life that they have experienced some of the things that you have. You get to travel and entertain masses of people all around the world. On stage, you stand in front of thousands and thousands of people. Every eye is on you, and the energy is positive and intense, not to mention that you perform with one of probably the most loved performing artists of our time. Walk us through the experience of what it is like performing on stage through the eyes of Wix Wickens. What is it like? Well, in this particular gig, there's a lot to do. There's 33 numbers in the set. We cover quite a wide range of time. For me personally, there's everything from... Uh, as Brian said, I get to play a bit of guitar, which is, funnily enough, the only thing I really had to audition for. Back in the day, when, when I went down to have a play, I got invited to go and have a play down at Paul's studio just to see how I'd fit in, I suppose, and whether I could obviously play the stuff. But when uh, we were going to do Can't Buy Me Love, and uh, I said, but look, there's no, there's no piano part on that, really. I should just, maybe I should just strum a guitar along to, for the rhythm. He went, well, can you play guitar? And I went, yeah, I can, you know, I've got my five chords, and I can do that. I had to sit in the kitchen with him, and we, we did it on two guitars just to show him that I could do it. So, you know, for me, it's everything from playing a bit of guitar, playing tambourine on Day Tripper, which is, I mean, it's an important tambourine part, through to arms and legs flying around on things like Live and Let Die, where I'm playing pedals and both hands are going and I'm triggering stuff. And sometimes I'm an octopus, sometimes I've just got to be a, a tambourine player. But so a very wide brief. And, you know, not so much on the stage, but before and during sound checks and during rehearsal, just, you know, keeping people up to speed, poking pull sometimes, just, just to get things happening, pay attention to some things, you know, just remind people where we are, because, you know, you can get caught out. You've had a great success in the world of music, and no doubt you've lived some of your dreams. So I have to ask you, are there any hopes and dreams you are working on achieving? I don't know, really. I I never made a solo record, and I didn't. I, I don't particularly really want to do that. I get asked regularly, would I consider it? I've just started thinking recently about if I was going to do a project, maybe not a record, what I would do. And I'm formulating one now that I might try and get off the ground, which is to revisit some of the people I've worked with in a very informal, a bit like this. Go to their hotel room with something like you're recording me on. A couple of mics, guitar, little keyboard. Write and record there and then. So you're getting as bare bones and as fresh as it can be. 
from maybe from ideas that I've, I'll take a bag full of ideas that you know you collect as a writer over the years and see see if I can do something like that and possibly I've, I think it'll probably be a website so you can go and, and, and see it and hear it and maybe down, pay and download it so I'm looking at maybe that and um, I guess the only other thing that I thought about doing even though I've been a musician for nearly 30 years I always wonder what I'd do if, if this stopped because you're forever looking over your shoulder as a, as a self-employed musician you'd think I'm never going to get the call. This is going to stop. I'll be out of a job. I train to be a teacher, and I enjoy working with kids and with, with helping other people to learn stuff. So I don't particularly want to teach music because I think there are way better people than me to do that. But music therapy or something like that is something that I've been looking at. What you were just talking about, it made me think on the last album, uh, Memory Almost Full, you got to play on that album, and it made me think, Sir Paul, just he's not stopping, it doesn't seem. He keeps recording and touring all over the world. Do you see any end in sight to the recording or the performing? I don't think he'll stop working at all, because he paints as well, and he has his classical music that he, he writes. I think he enjoys that process. And there aren't any rules. There haven't been any rules set for for an end stop, you know. You can quote lines from Who songs and, you know, take a look at the Rolling Stones who go out every couple of years and all the old blues guys who never stopped. There was no, I mean, a lot of them had to keep going to eat, I guess, and, and to live. But, you know, B.B. King retired and then carried straight on. This is my last tour. And maybe, you know, maybe he slowed down. But um, I'm happy to be in an industry where there isn't really a, a cut-off point preset. You know, sometimes you get that made for you by other people, maybe, but uh, no, I can't see it stopping at all. Through the music, you've had the opportunity to explore far sides of the world and meet people of many different cultures. What has been your absolute favorite location that you've played? That's very tough, because I've been fortunate over the years to play a lot of special things, uh, not just with Paul. Paul has opened a lot of doors, because... Obviously, things can get moved and special events will happen around him, but um, I've been lucky to be part of some great, great stuff. The Queen's Jubilee concert where we, we got to play in the Queen's backyard, you know, in her garden. That was a pretty special moment. Uh, with this band, we played at the at the Coliseum, and we played inside the Coliseum to, like, 300 people, and we played outside the Coliseum the next night to half a million people. That was a pretty special location because they lit the Coliseum. It looked fantastic. It was, you know, it was a lovely evening. I mean, then, you know, we did Red Square. That was that was the first to play a rock show inside Red Square. So it's hard to pick one place. People sometimes ask me if it gets boring or repetitive, and each new audience is a new thing for me. That's It could be their first and only time that they see a show. And... That and the enthusiasm of, of other people and how Paul approaches it is what fires me up to be involved completely in each show because it's, it's a new event every time. You've been a part of Paul McCartney's band the longest. How has your role as a member of Paul McCartney's band changed over the last 20 years? Well, I suppose the biggest change would be that I've got to know him, and when we this new band got put together, and like I said earlier, I was able to help them learn in 
the songs in the way that he liked, at least to start with. And I suppose in my relationship with him, I'm able to step close to the line in order to get him to do some learning if he needs to, you know. I'm able to do that in a way that can get things done and still remain some, you know, some kind of professionalism between us because I have to have that as well to be able to to galvanize everybody, including Paul, when it needs to happen. Having interviewed all of the people in Paul McCartney's band, with the exception of Sir Paul, of course, I wanted to know, you guys bring the music to the world and make the music come alive in front of all these thousands of people, but on a personal level, Abe Laboreal Jr., Rusty Anderson, Brian Ray, what do these people mean to you personally? Oh, they're, they're really good friends now. When you play music with people, you, you do get a special bond that happens over and above just meeting people. In this situation, we've walked through fire together. You know, there have been circumstances, big gigs, little gigs, problems, whatever, that, that we've had to face together. And that bonds you in a particular way. But over and above that, they're all really nice guys. You've, you've just interviewed them, and they've all got their own different personalities. And Abe I spend a lot of time with because he's next to me backstage. We're the back row, as we call ourselves. You know, we just allow the other front three to be up the front and have the spotlights, but we're the ones that keep it going. So we have a little special thing going because of that. No, it's like family. You may, It becomes like a family when you play music this close. This might be a tough question. What song that you perform means the most to you? And secondly, of all songs from any artist, could you pick your favorite song of any artist? I couldn't pick a favorite song because music's too wide and it's linked to your emotions and your emotional state and how you feel. So what I might put on when I'm feeling melancholy or play to myself or play when I'm you know, about to go out and party is two vastly different things. So that's way too wide to, to pick one thing. In terms of the, the set and what we've done with Paul, the way we close the show now, we, we do a, um, a medley between the part of Sgt. Pepper and going into the end from um, the Abbey Road album. When we first started back in 89, I got into the Beatles really in reverse order. Abbey Road was the first album that I really sat and listened to under headphones. I'd heard other stuff by my brothers and sisters, but that was the first one for me that I took on myself, listened to, studied. And that last medley on Abbey Road is probably my favourite bit of Beatles music, or most significant to me. When we started rehearsing in 89, I said, you know, it would be great if we could get that golden slumbers to the end. That would be a fantastic chunk of music to, to do. We rehearsed it up with the band without Paul and Linda so that we knew it, and we had a run-through with Paul. We struggled our way through it because there's you know, lots of chops and changes, and, and um, we got through it, and it was pretty ropey, but we got to the end, and unbeknownst to us, Paul's, the guy that looks after Paul's studios is somebody called Eddie Klein, and Eddie was from Abbey Road and uh, was at the original recordings of a lot of Beatles stuff. And he was just standing in the corner, and it made him go misty-eyed. He took him way back there, however badly we played it. And I think that was a clinching factor for Paul. He saw how that had affected Eddie, and then we got it together and we learned it properly. And, and that became our, our, our final encore on the, on the first couple of tours, that whole section, that 15 minutes of music. 
And that, I think, to me, is probably my favourite thing. And we do part of that now. And uh, it took a bit of getting together because I have to play the bass with my left hand at the end because the three of them are playing guitars and we're swapping and it's quite orchestral. and it's So, you know, it took a bit of juggling to actually make it work. But it's such a significant piece of music for me personally to have played it live and to have sort of been instrumental in actually getting it happening. It means a lot to me when we do that. I don't see another way we can really end the show. We've tried to end it in different ways, but that's chronologically the final bit of music that the Beatles recorded. And that statement at the end just about says it all. And I think it's it's got to be one of the best endings to a show you can have. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I have two final questions. One is very, very simple and lighthearted. What is your all-time favorite meal? Oh, well, probably I'd have to say mince and tatties or spaghetti. I mean, I'm a big, I'm a huge pasta fan. I'm a pasta fan, but, oh, you can't, that's, that's just too tough because it, it depends, you know, I do like, I like eggs in the morning. There's nothing better. But mince and tatties, I would say. That's why I married my wife because she could make great mince and tatties. <laughs> It's not the only reason, everybody, so, you know, <laughs> please don't tell her. Actually, she knows, so that's all right. Well, the last question. Paul McCartney's fandom is worldwide. This broadcast is going out all over the world. What would you, Mr. Paul Wicks-Wickens, like to say to all the people from around the world who are listening to this? Eat your greens and don't be naughty, because I'm watching Mr. Wickens, thank you so much for this interview. It's been extremely stimulating to hear. Glad to be able to do it. It seems like you put a lot of feeling into the interview. I appreciate it. When you sent me the questions, I didn't look at them. I thought, I'd, you know, I'd like to come in cold and just see, see what happens rather than, you know, start studying. So It's been a pleasure. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour. <laughs>